0: Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Saji Sekara, co-founder and CEO of Benchling, the pioneer of the R&D cloud that powers the biotechnical industry. Saji dropped out of MIT to co-found Benchling in 2012 and has since guided the company through the significant milestones and remarkable growth. Today, more than 200,000 scientists at over almost 1,000 companies in 7,500 research institutions globally have adopted Benchling R&D Cloud to make breakthrough discoveries and bring the next generation of medicines, food, and materials to market faster than ever before. Benchling was most recently valued at over $6 billion. Prior to Benchling, Saji studied computer science at MIT and dropped out in his junior year. And with that, let's welcome Saji what you've built over at Benchling has been incredible. Um, It's been described as a digital version of a scientist's lab notebook. Can we start from the beginning? What is Benchling in your own words? And let's go back through that original origin story because it is so unique.
1: At Benchling, our, our mission is to unlock the power of biotechnology. So we believe the 21st century will be defined by biology. So, you know, it's the most important technology platform since the Internet and it has the potential to solve some of the world's biggest challenges from disease to hunger to, to climate change. Um, so Benchling, we we bring modern software to modern science. Um, so I'm a software engineer, uh, but I worked in a molecular biology lab for many years, oddly enough. Um, so I kind of had one foot in the world of software where software engineers have these amazing tools for collaborating around code. But the other foot was in the world of science um, and scientists had these absolutely archaic digital tools this really like, frustrated me. Um, so I believed better tools would make science faster, more collaborative, and, and more fun. And that was the beginning of the journey. It was about 11 years ago. Um, today we make this product called the R&D Cloud. You could think about it like a digital lab where scientists go to do work. So it's got these purpose-built tools that help them design molecules, plan experiments, capture data, track samples, coordinate experiments across different teams, analyze the data, and, and share information and for companies it kind of ends up being this central source of truth where all their complex scientific data lives and having a complete picture of all the science that's happening in a fast moving rapidly evolving organization ends up being this huge benefit after all science is about answering questions and you can't really do that without data and so today benchling is used by about 1200 of the most cutting edge biotech companies globally com- you know blue chip companies like Regeneron or AstraZeneca or Novozymes, but also, you know, emerging startups, rising stars like Verve Therapeutics or or Pairwise Plants. And so benchling is also used by scientists at over 7,000 academic and research institutes around the world as well.
0: Can we go back, Saji, to those early days back in 2012? What was the status quo in biotech then? What were you trying to improve and make better?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really important to understand also how the status quo was changing. So I kind of look at it from the angle of biotech itself has rapidly and, and dramatically evolved over the last decade. We've had orders of magnitude type changes in the tools that scientists have to read, write, and edit biology in the lab. And so we've seen a lot of firsts that have come from that. The new types of medicines like Cell therapy is designed to re-engineer a patient's immune system to treat and cure cancer. We've seen RNA vaccines, which everyone knows about, Um, you know, breakthroughs in gene editing um, and so forth. And so like the science is changing really rapidly and the complexity is going way up. The amount of collaboration and specialization required is going up. The volumes of data that are being generated are all going up. And so it's gotten a lot harder and the stakes have gone up. So the status quo is like, it's quickly getting worse and worse for scientists. Um, you know, a lot of the low hanging fruit that these folks are going after is gone. And so the ambitions are higher too. Like scientists want to cure diseases, not just treat them. Scientists have gone, have, have kind of been put in this place where we're asking them to build jet planes, but we've sort of handed them the, the bicycle repair kit and said, it said make do when it comes to comes to software. And so much of the industry runs on paper and spreadsheets and things like that. There's obviously great productivity software that sort of most consumers use in their day-to-day life, but it's not purpose built for for science. And there are scientific tools, of course, but most of them were kind of old and outdated and built for a different era of science that wasn't so biology centric. And so you have these larger companies that end up with these incredibly complex ecosystem of tools where sometimes scientists are using dozens of different tools that they kind of have to string together to, to make work, much of which was homegrown. And so what we did that's unique at Benchling and kind of different from the status quo is we brought it all together in this really seamless way and built it for cutting edge science.
0: Saji, you took a really unusual approach as you were building out the go to market strategy by starting to offer Benchling for free to academics to build up a really loyal customer base. And I'm sure also to refine and perfect product market fit. Can you tell us a little of how you landed on this strategy and what benefits you got? By going forward with that strategy,
1: yeah, back back in 2012 when we were starting, a lot of people thought this was was silly, um, and, and for for good reason. Students and academics, they they basically have no money for software, um, and and the kind of the path to larger enterprise companies that that was really murky at best at the time. Like when when I reflect on it, if if you think about the company as a product itself, it kind of makes sense. Like this was the fastest way for us as a company to build. This repeatable way of winning the hearts and minds of scientists and and build a repeatable process for understanding their workflows and translating it into software. And so for us, it was all about speed. You know, for years, the company was this small team that exclusively wrote code and talked to scientists. Like we didn't really do anything else. By focusing on academics and giving it away for free, we're able to increase the iteration speed of improving our product and shipping new features. We got feedback really, really quickly. It also forced the product to be really good. Academic scientists, students, they don't adopt things in a top-down way just because some CIO or an organization decides that they have to. They adopt tools that genuinely make their lives better. So it's at a really high bar for us to clear. A couple other benefits of it that I think were really powerful in, in hindsight, it allowed us to really learn where the science was going. Um, some of the first users of Benchling were in the labs that really pioneered CRISPR. And they would talk to us and write to us about how our tools could be evolved to support sort of cutting edge science like their own. And so we built really good connectivity with some of the most kind of preeminent labs all across the US and, and the world. And we were able to kind of adjust our software to where these folks were going. And you know the industry soon followed suit. And then there was this side benefit that we kind of inadvertently trained the next generation of scientists. We got them all using our tools while while they were in in school, and you know many of them left to start companies or to join cutting edge biotech startups, and they they took benching with them.
0: What did you learn about getting inside the companies? Was it the scientists that pulled you there? Was it a dual strategy? How did you think about that go to market to get into the Fortune five hundred F- Fortune fifty companies that you got into?
1: I think one sort of first thing to call out about. Benchling is that we are a vertical company, so we only focus on sort of practitioners of biotechnology. They, they do cross industries. You know, About 80% of our business is making medicines, but 20% is in agriculture, food, consumer product goods, diagnostics, You know, a whole host of industries where scientists are very much reading, writing, editing the, the code of life, but everyone is doing biotechnology. So we're pretty focused and purpose-built. So we, we've chosen to go really deep with a narrower set of, of companies. Um, And the unique thing is that allows us to invest really heavily into our own product development and create kind of unique value for that set of customers versus having to go really, really broad and invest a lot of our resources in sales and marketing and whatnot. So I think being very product focused and industry oriented has been a differentiator from from day one. To succeed that way, though, in sort of vertical markets like ours, it's going to sound trite, but I think a lot of it is about trust and being trusted advisors to our customers. These aren't overnight journeys. You know, some of our customers, they're spending billions of dollars a year on R&D. So if you're going to build foundational infrastructure that powers that whole operation, that's a really big business decision for them. They're, they're kind of betting what's their lifeblood on you. Security is really important as well. You know, for our customers, the, their IP is their lifeblood. You know, these are billion-dollar drugs in some cases that are, you know, living in, inside of Benchling. And then the, the final thing I'd share is that It's not just about the product, it's about the people. Some of our customers, like the scientists who use Benchling, they might only work at four, five, six companies in their their career. And so over time, we get to bring sort of the best practices on how to work together to do cutting-edge R&D to our customers and help define standards across the industry. For us, though, that requires a really interesting mix of talent. We have to have both amazing software engineers to build a best-in-class digital product, but we also have to have scientists who speak the language that our customers do. Bringing these two together has been sort of a unique secret that's led to a lot of our go-to-market success, I think.
0: Saji, so, can we touch a little bit on what, what makes your product magical for a scientist? If we are just everybody listening, pretend you're a scientist. Walk us through the customer experience, the, the the product experience for a scientist, and what makes it 10x anything they were doing prior?
1: I think it's really important to set the stage of what life was like for scientists before Benchling, the, the status quo was not not very good. It's a very analog industry, not because people are averse to technology, but because there's very little purpose built technology for science that kind of handles the complexity of it. What Benchling is, what we do is really, really uniquely well is we bring together what would normally be in probably dozens of different tools, all under one roof, when you experience it, you can tell that it's been really well-designed and that we've put the experience of the scientist who's at the bench doing the painstaking work first. And so even just bringing design to a space and sort of this interdisciplinary notion of benchling, I think is something that will you'll sort of find come up, a, up and again and again with us, where we brought sort of the best of software and science together. Benchling is really well-designed. The second thing is it's purpose-built for biology. And, and as you were saying earlier, we, we started to focus very heavily on biology from the beginning of the company, but the industry itself has shifted kind of from chemistry to biology over that time period as well. And so we happen to be kind of right place, right time as this new way of working and this new way of doing science started to take off.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the biggest trends that you're seeing in your category and one or two big predictions maybe that seem really obvious to you that maybe aren't that obvious to everyone out here?
1: We're very early innings if I look back at the last four or five years alone, the industry's had a lot of firsts. You know, we had the first cell therapy, which is, you know, re-engineering a patient's immune system to treat cancer instead of sort of using harmful and and toxic drugs. And even outside of medicine, the first gene edited plants are coming to grocery stores now. So there've been a lot of firsts, but rarely is the first ever the best. The, The first is oftentimes going to be superseded very quickly, and it's, it's very hard to even imagine what V2, V3, V4 of these technologies are going to look like. So it's it's really early innings, and I think it's it's exciting. There's like a biological renaissance going on, and people are talking now in terms of cures and not treatments and things like that. So the you know most important message I'd have is that biotech is going to keep getting bigger, more meaningful, and more important over the coming decade. And I can't even begin to imagine kind of the amazing breakthroughs that are going to come. Where I'm going to differ a little bit from the crowd is AI kind of designing new molecules and drugs is where a lot of the the hype and excitement is. But I actually think everyone is underappreciating the toil that's going to be reduced for scientists. Um, and I think it fits really well with kind of the ethos of, of benchling, like making life much better for the practitioners at the lab bench doing the hard, hard work. Everything from writing reports to cleansing and analyzing data to collating information, like the amount of time that's spent on kind of those types of activities, it would probably blow your mind. I actually think like some of the benefits of AI are going to be freeing up scientists to do science um, and really shrinking the gap between kind of the wet lab where all the science is happening and the dry lab where all the machine learning folks are. It's going to be giving kind of superpowers to all all scientists and it's going to totally change the it's like a compounding effect that's going to change the the output of the entire entire industry. So, I think, you know, high level, I'm very excited for it, probably for different reasons than than many would say. If you sort of asked like folks outside of the industry, how much time do you think scientists spend on those activities? I th- I think people would be really surprised at how much sort of administrative work goes into being a scientist just because of how complex the science is.
0: Any other just like tangible predictions what does that mean for everyone listening? What are, give us an example of like what we'll get, what benefit we'll get from that massive enhancement?
1: When people think biotech today, I think medicines are the place everyone sort of gravitates to, and for a good reason. Like human health is front and center for for most people. I think there's a lot of debilitating diseases out there. Um, COVID obviously elevated the importance of. Biotech the world and all improved our sort of acumen understanding of of the power of biotechnology. But I think the number of industries biology is touching would be surprising to most people. We have customers who are in in sort of agriculture and food who are re-engineering crops to have better built-in genetic defenses against pests and drought and heat and things like that. There's you know meatless meat companies and you know alternative proteins that are trying to reduce the you know, make make it economical, the creation of, of meat without livestock. You have lots of traditional products that people are used to, you know, household goods and things like that that require a lot of chemicals to make, and they're sort of environmentally damaging processes to make those chemicals, and you have folks kind of reinventing these products in like a green and sustainable way, using biology to almost grow them in the lab. You have new kinds of diagnostics that are allowing us to detect and catch disease earlier, I think these other industries being touched by biotechnology is the other kind of major trend. And, and, you know, while biopharma and medicines are are the bulk of what people see today, like that that could flip in the next five, 10 years. And some of these other kind of categories could be bigger and, and as meaningful.
0: You have been named uh, one of the best places to work. Benchling has many times. Can you share with us a little bit of your tips on scaling a successful company culture?
1: I think it really does help when you have a great mission. Uh, I think a great mission is a magnet for talented people who want to make an impact, and so that's a really great place to be be starting from. I think one thing we've done really well over 11 years, and, and it's evolved, is to be very intentional about our culture. And when I say intentional, I mean actually writing it down, interviewing for it, hiring for it, promoting for it, firing for it, and, and so forth. Um, And a couple of like elements of that I'd call out that are, I think, I hope every sort of employee, if you ask them would, would reflect back to you as, you know, a mainstay of our culture. Uh, We're pretty, like, we're a very like transparent organization. You know, we're very open about what's working and what's, what's not working. Um, One of our, we we have a, we have a set of uh, leadership principles. They're kind of like commandments. Like if you follow these, you'll probably be pretty successful at, at Benchling, kind of them. And one of them is to admit mistakes and, and shortcomings. And so it's really important to have a group of employees who are very growth mindset. And it's got to start with me and my co-founder, you know, constantly being open about things we tried that, that don't work because it's a startup and you're fundamentally doing things that no one's done before. And so there's going to be a lot of failure involved. And if more senior leaders are able to act that way, I think it creates a, like this air of vulnerability and then everyone is willing to do it as, as well. So that's number one. I think number two is about sweating the details we serve very like a very technical and and precise industry and audience. And so that's got to be reflected in our company as well. Um, So kind of I view myself, my co-founder as we're almost like we're editors of what our company is doing. And if I see something that's sort of not up to our standard, you always have to have to edit it. And the third and sort of probably most important is just obsession over customers. And this is probably extra pronounced when you're in a vertical like ours, where we're serving very deeply, serving a you know smaller group of customers. My perspective is that like without customers, we don't have a business and, and no one has jobs. And so customers have to be at the kind of center of, of what we do.
0: And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Saji, I want to transition a little bit to you. You grew up in North Carolina. Was um, there something that in the rearview mirror your parents did to being a, something you draw on in your everyday life today that has made you so successful with Benchling?
1: Look, I, I think I've been very fortunate and lucky. You know, if I, if I really zoom out, like I was born in America to parents who, you know, had valued education. I got the opportunity to go to really good public schools. I got the opportunity to go to MIT. And I think I've always been very fortunate to surround myself with, with great people. I I do think, I really do think that ambition is a product of the environment you're in. Like, I think that's one thing that's really unique about Silicon Valley even. And, you know, it's a bit of a, bit of a mindset, but I think like ambition is something that is kind of, it's like free to raise, like you can increase someone's ambition kind of for free and with like conversations and being around really ambitious people kind of is infectious and makes you more ambitious. And so I kind of attribute that to, sort of one, one really unique thing about both the public schools I went to, MIT, and even even sort of the Bay Area where I've, where I've built Benchling that's had a really big impact on, on me and the company.
0: You dropped out of MIT during your junior year. Where did that risk-taking insight come from? And walk us through that decision to drop out. I dropped out of HBS in the fall of uh, 2008, bottom of the recession. So I appreciate how scary it is to, to really pull the ripcord. But what gave you the comfort to do it?
1: So in case my, in case my parents are listening, the, the technical term is leave of absence, you know, could always, could always <laughs> go back. <laughs> um, you know, I, I go back to like the sort of, again, a bit of naivete um, and I, I definitely don't sort of like recommend cart, you know, blank check dropping out. Um, but honestly, I had, I had an itch to build something and my thought process at the time was worst case, it doesn't work and I can go back to school. Um, so that, that was, that was my thought process. MIT was this incredible place where I got a, both a rigorous education, but more importantly, I met a lot of like incredible people as well. My co-founder I met at MIT freshman, freshman year, our first couple of employees were classmates from, from MIT. So it was a really special place that I'm, I'm grateful for. Um, so, and and in terms of like my background and the company, I think if you look at what Benchling was when we started, it actually did fit my background pretty well and my co-founder's background. It's only sort of now when you look at it 11 years later that, you know, we work with all these, you know, big multinational pharmaceutical companies and there's a lot of fortune 500 and working with enterprises, like that's all come much later. But at first, like I was a software engineer. So I, you know, I liked building stuff. I liked writing software and I worked in a biology lab. I worked in a molecular biology lab for a couple of years and I actually wanted to go into science, like I thought I might do a PhD, maybe it'd be in sort of computational biology or something like that. I wanted to kind of bring both together. But as sort of coming from this fast paced world of software with great tools and so forth, science felt very kind of slow and not that collaborative. And it was hard to do stuff. And so like, I think seeing the world of software actually gave me the inspiration that, hey, working together could be different in in science. And, you know, not being a scientist myself, I definitely wouldn't like identify myself as a, as a scientist. I think all of our customers would sort of sniff that out very quickly. Um, the, I think the benefit though, is I'd spent enough time in science in the lab that I had some credibility to have a conversation with the scientists and they could quickly figure out that I have, I have a bit of empathy for like what their life is and what their, their work was. And so I could kind of speak both languages. And I think that's like, as a, you know, my co-founder is a very similar background as a, as like, I think that's been a very like good combination for us because We know enough to be dangerous in both software and science, but we don't know so much that we think we have the answers. Like, I wouldn't dare sort of say that I could tell our customers what the exact answer to their problems were, but I could definitely listen and have a dialogue with them and sort of extract it um, and then build great software as well.
0: Next question is You are now over a decade into being founder and CEO. Give us a sense of one or two things just to pay it forward to other founders because. You only evolve as quickly as the founder can evolve. Companies only grow as fast as the founder can grow. What does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, I think one of the hardest transitions that I had to to make and every founder has to make and you know I was I was very lucky to have a great sort of board and sort of folks in my corner could help kind of point this out to me. I think a lot of folks don't don't get good advice here. There's a big transition from, you know, primary Builder of the product, and sort of almost like you're almost like a artist to builder, whatever. In the early days, where you know you're pouring over every detail of the product and talking to all the customers, you're doing a lot yourself. Um, and there comes a point where you have to start building a company that can do that itself—a self-sustaining organization that you know trying to get to a point where it doesn't even need you, and it's you know scaling up because you can't be everywhere all at once. Getting really clear on the job of a founder and CEO during that is. Probably the best advice I can give. Um, and so that job becomes it's pretty simple to articulate, but really hard in practice, where one, articulate a very clear vision. The second thing is you have to assemble a team. And in many cases, like for me, at least in particular, that involved hiring senior leaders who you know knew their domain better than I did and um, building like an executive team. I think a lot of companies are, are rate limited on the quality of their management team being able to do that. And as the company gets bigger to bring in more and more leadership, um, I think that's like the number two, two job. And then I think if you do sort of both the articulation of the vision, right. And hiring and managing of executives, like the rest can kind of take care of itself.
0: A pretty tough job. It's an insane job, quite literally. You get highs and lows, and sometimes those highs and lows can happen in the same hour. What do you do to stay sane? Can you give us the tips or tricks you've kind of adopted and evolved and picked up from fellow founders and entrepreneurs to help you stay calm through it all?
1: You know, my, my general reflection looking back 11 years is that at any given time, you're probably never as good or as bad as you think. Um, and so just remembering that is always a very like grounding thing, thing for myself. I've had many sort of crises where I was like, oh, oh gosh, like this is it. And like, mentioning not gonna make it. And then like, we figure out some way. I think mission matters so much. Um, building a great company, as you said, is it's like this miserable, grindy process. Um, but you know, you gotta think about why you're doing it. And for me, the mission makes it worth it. The second thing is, I think it's all about the people you surround yourself with. I have a great co-founder. My co-founder and I have known each other since we were 18 um, and we're incredible friends. And uh, his impact to the business is as uh, higher than mine, probably. Um, And I think that's like a really lucky place to be. It's a roller coaster, but you're not both usually at the same point on the roller coaster at the same time. So it's kind of useful to balance, balance things out.
0: Last question is, what do you hold as sacred? Is there something, a pillar of something that you hold as sacred? I think
1: being a constant learner is probably probably the thing that I, I hold most as sacred. Like, I, I once heard this great phrase that it's much better to be like a, you know, there's like the term like know-it-all, but it's much better to be like a learn-it-all, like the person you're like, they will go figure it out no matter what it is. You know, I think one very grounding and, and humbling thing to remember is that like, the only thing that I know better than anyone at the company is Benchling's vision. And that's because vision is like by definition made up. And I've thought about it 24 seven since Benchling was was started since the company's existence. But the flip side of that is I'm not the most, I, I don't know the most about every dif- different discipline of thing that's happening at, at the company. And I, I don't have to be like the expert at it, but I have to be in constant learning mode to make sure that we are bringing it all together.
0: We're gonna to move to the quick fire round. Saji, I'm gonna ask you a question. First thing that comes to your mind, uh, no hesitations. What gets you out of bed every day?
1: Responsibility. Uh, we we have this amazing opportunity where we've we've built something that twelve hundred companies, like they these are companies that are treating, like curing cancer and other things, and like. Their business would grind to a halt without our software, and so, like they're, they've trusted us um, with some of their most foundational infrastructure. So that's one, and then two, we've got more than eight hundred very talented benchlings on our payroll who get up every day and choose to work at Benchling, and I have a responsibility to them, and I, I better not mess it up.
0: How about this? What is a book of any kind? It could be a business book, a non-business book children's book, any book that has left a real mark on you in some way.
1: Um, I just read this book called Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gadara. And I I really love books just about like excellence and people's like dedication to their craft and and sort of doing things kind of outside the the bounds of what's conventional and and status quo.
0: What to date is your biggest pinch me moment when you think about Benchling that you just came home and were like, I can't believe that happened. What happened?
1: The first time uh, a really large pharmaceutical company made a big bet on Benchling to power their their scientific research, um, this was probably 2016 or 17. So it's it's been a, like you know four or five years since we started Benchling at this point, and I think navigating this transition from you know. This set of academics use Benchling kind of loosely for free in school to small biotechs beginning to trust Benchling kind of because they didn't really have another option that matched how cutting edge their science was to a like very large company with a lot of resources saying, hey, even though we are spending billions of dollars a year on R&D, we could build all the custom software we want on our own without ever talking to you. But like, yes, we're going to take a bet on you.
0: Is there a special interview question that you really like to ask to get to the heart of who somebody is?
1: Oh, man, you're asking me to... Give up the <laughs> give up the the question. Um I I really love asking about a time that someone like screwed something up or something went really lo- wrong. Like that that's like I think I learn a lot about sort of a person and and whether or not they're gonna be a fit at benchling based on how they would answer, answer something like that.
0: I love that. Um first of all, Sadji, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you wanna learn more, check out benchling.com. Uh, and you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Bolsaji. Saji, we are rooting for you. Congratulations on almost 12 years of exceptionally hard work that is paying off and you're changing the world of biotech before all of our eyes. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real honor.
1: Thanks for having me, Alexa.